Before we get started with the show, I want to quickly remind you of the limited time discounted offer that's available on my newly launched Nutrition Mastery Blueprint course. If you're listening to this podcast on release date, you should have a few more days to take advantage of the limited time $100 off offer. If you are listening to this after November 17th, the price has gone up since then, but you may be able to still take advantage of a discount if it's still the month of November. Go to dradrianchavez.com forward slash mastery or check out the link to the course in the show notes for more information. If you enjoy the way that I teach about nutrition and health, you want to go a little bit deeper and you want access to a course that's organized in a way that's going to be easier for you to implement, that's going to include resources and tools to help you actually put this into practice, this course is for you. So go to dradrianchavez.com forward slash mastery for more information. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed science-based decisions about about nutrition and your health. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Chavez, and today we have another Q&A episode. So if you haven't heard one of these Q&A episodes before, what I do is I take five questions. I solicit the questions from my Instagram page. If you're not following me there, I recommend going and following me. I'll post a link in the show notes, and you can leave a question when I do do these Q&As. So you can also find my page. If you don't want to go to the show notes, just type in Adrian Chavez in Google, or if you're on Instagram, just type in Adrian Chavez. You should be able to find my page if you do that. So I recommend following me there, and I do pop a question box up every couple of weeks, and you can submit a question, and I choose from those questions to answer some of those here on the podcast. Today, we are going to be discussing five questions. Number one is going to be, are air fryers safe to use? Number two is going to be how to remove pesticide residues from foods. Number three, are there any benefits to a colostrum supplement? Number four, do I think misinformation online should be illegal? That should be a fun one. And number five, should we avoid deli meats? And those are the five questions that we're going to cover today. We've done a few of these Q&A episodes. I've gotten great feedback about them, so I want to continue doing them. I just put another question box into my Instagram. It's going to be done by the time you guys listen to this, uh, but I recommend following me there if you do want to participate. So I realize these podcast episodes have fallen into three categories of types of episodes. We have the Q&A episodes, and we also have the longer form episodes where I'll cover one topic and I cover it in more depth. I usually provide a lot of citations and really try to break down a topic. So we've talked about fiber, we've talked about energy balance, we've talked about saturated fat, we've talked about glucose spikes, and a lot of other great topics. I highly recommend checking some of those out if you have not listened to those already. If you're new to the show and you just started listening, I recommend going back and listening to some of those old episodes because I've covered a lot of topics in great depth, fish oil, eggs. And so if you go back and you had a question about omega-3 fats or fish oil, if you go back and listen to that episode, you'll probably get most of your questions answered. In these Q&A episodes, I don't go into as much depth, but typically these topics don't require as much depth. And if they do, I'll probably cover them on a topic episode in the future. I have a whole list of topics that I still want to get to, and I'm looking forward to building out a library of just really high quality episodes on topics that I can just refer people to. So if you have a question, you can go search the database of episodes and find an answer to any question you have. And that's the goal uh, with this podcast is building up really a good database of information for all of you to refer to and get your questions answered and hopefully get accurate 
high quality information about nutrition through the episodes that we have archived. So that's the second type of episode, these topic episodes. The third one are episodes where I'm bringing on a guest and I want to introduce you all to other experts in related fields. So I've brought on my friend Crystal Zuniga, who is a cancer nutrition specialist. I am not a cancer nutrition specialist. She knows cancer a lot better than I do. I'm really good at digestive, metabolic, cardiovascular health. She's better at cancer. And I'll bring on other people as well who have specific expertise in various areas that I think can provide value to you all. And I also want you to make sure and go follow those people and consume some of their information that they put out outside of uh, this interview because that's going to help you as well. I have knowledge in certain areas, but I can't help you with everything. And I want to make sure that you're getting exposed to other people who are experts in their field. So I have, I've had Joey Munoz on. I've had Alyssa Olenek on. They've talked about exercise, building muscle, and then also uh, exercise through the menstrual cycle. And these, these people have PhDs. These are all of the people that I've mentioned so far have PhDs, and I'm also going to have a few others as well who, who are just experts in their field. They provide a lot of value, who really understand their various niches in nutrition, and I'm looking forward to doing a little bit more of that. Another quick announcement about the podcast. Last month, we had 30,000 downloads, which was a significant increase. It was like 36,000, actually. Significant increase from the month before, and I really appreciate all of you for sharing the podcast because that's how it grows. And that's how it's growing, is through word of mouth, and I really appreciate that. So if you're enjoying the show, one of the best things you can do, or some of the best things you can do, leave a review. Wherever you listen to it, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, just put a review, talk about what you like about the show, you know, offer any critiques if you want, I'm cool with that too. And then also share the podcast with other people. I get a lot of messages from coaches, and I really appreciate that. A lot of nutrition coaches and personal trainers who say they share it with their clients. That is like the ultimate compliment to know that other professionals are sharing this information. That tells me that I know I'm putting out quality information if other professionals in the field are using it as a reference. So I really appreciate hearing that. But for those of you who aren't aren't like coaches and things like that, you know, sharing it with your family, sharing it with your friends. This is how these things grow. And it's exciting to see that momentum. And I want to continue to see it grow. And I really appreciate you all helping with that. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the content of the show. First question, are air fryers safe to use? The answer to that is yes, they are safe to use. I know that there's probably social media content that is fear mongering you about the nonstick coating that is put into air fryers. Nonstick coating can be dangerous if it's getting into your food, if it's scraping into your food. It's typically not going to get into your food. And if it was, you would see it kind of wear off over time. And if that was the case, then you're getting a little bit of that nonstick coating into your food. And you probably don't want to do that. But at the end of the day, even if you were, even if you were just using an air fryer, you were putting your food directly on the coating, you weren't putting any, any spray or anything, your food was getting stuck to the coating, some of that coating was coming off into your food, and tiny amounts were going into your food over time, and, and you were absorbing some of that over over the course of months and years. That still probably wouldn't have any noticeable impact on your health or increase any disease risk overall. So this is something that we get scared about because people make scary content about it, and there is some truth to it. Like the there are the PFASs and other chemical compounds in these nonstick coatings, and I'm I'm not super familiar with this topic. I've done a little bit of research into it, uh, but these nonstick coatings can potentially be harmful, just like a lot of other chemical compounds that we are now being exposed to at higher levels. Like there is some health risk 
associated with very high levels of exposure. But you're not going to have very high levels of exposure in most cases if you're just cooking your food in an air fryer a couple times a week. Especially, and you can minimize this by using non-stick sprays so that your food's not sticking to it, or also using like parchment paper or something like that so your food is not even touching the surface of the air fryer. There's ways around it, and even if you just completely uh, didn't think about it at all, the amount of risk, um, the amount of health effect that that's going to have is so small. And one of the things that makes it really challenging for a lot of people to, to be healthy, to live a healthy lifestyle, is, is spending way too much time uh, worrying about all of this stuff, and it's because we get exposed to you know, various pieces of information that, that blow it out of proportion. Do we want to be exposed to very high levels of these compounds in the nonstick coating? No. Do we need to really worry about it and inconvenience ourselves to the point where um, we don't use an air fryer that may offer significant amount of convenience for us? No. Again, no. So if you're using an air fryer, you like air fryers, they, they help uh, you with leading a healthy lifestyle because they make cooking certain foods easier. They make cooking dinner easier. They make cooking at home easier. And for almost everyone, the benefits of the convenience factor is going to outweigh the potential exposure to the small amounts of chemical constituents in the air fryer. The other side of it is people use an air fryer as a substitute for frying stuff in oil. I am much better with someone using an air fryer and being exposed to a small amount of these chemical compounds than frying a food in oil that's gonna add 250 calories of straight oil to the meal. That's a better option. In terms of health, the exposure to the nonstick coating would be a better option. And again, this is where making sure that people who are presenting information to you present it to you in context rather than presenting it in a fear-mongering way or a sensational way. And if you're taking information from the news or just scrolling through a feed, it's typically going to be fear-mongering and sensational. Pretty much, if people ask me, like, oh, what about this Washington Post article or this New York Times article? They sensationalize things. They make money off of your clicks, and they are more interested in your eyeballs than they are in you being healthy. And it's important to understand that. Now, I also make money the more people that listen to the show, the more social media followers I have, like that increases my income, of course. And so obviously I have incentive as well. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not worth it for me. I am, I'm not going to uh, sensationalize and fear monger in a way that is leading people in the wrong direction and not improving their health. I didn't get into this field to, to just make a whole bunch of money. Now, I have every intention of doing well for myself financially over the long run through the activities that I, that I do in this field because I put out a lot of value, but I didn't get into this field. I didn't go into nutrition saying, oh, I want to be rich. This is not the type of field where you just come in and make a whole bunch of money. And, and making a whole bunch of money takes a whole lot more work than it does in another field where you know the financial rewards are just higher. And you know I got into this field because I want to help people be healthier because I know what happens when you do the right things when it comes to your nutrition and health. You're going to feel better. You're going to feel happier with your body. You're going to end up looking better. You're going to have better body composition. And you're going to live longer and have lower rates of chronic disease over the long term if you can stick with these things and incorporate healthy lifestyle habits. I've personally done it myself. I've been doing this for 18 years now in terms of eating healthier and exercising and trying to take care of my body and just investing into my health and paying attention and focusing on the big rocks. Uh, I don't worry about these little things. I use an air fryer. I've never never once crossed my mind and think, oh, this is unsafe for me and I need to be like worried about it. I do use parchment paper for easy cleanup and so that makes it 
uh, I'm the food is not being exposed to this nonstick coating, but I, I haven't even ever second guessed this. And I and I'm aware of the chemical compounds in the nonstick coating. It's not that I'm clueless of it. It's just for me, I, it's very clear to me. The convenience factor outweighs the minute potential theoretical risk based on lab studies where people are exposed to very high amounts of these compounds. So number one, air fryers, yes, they're safe. One of the most common struggles that people experience with nutrition is getting enough protein. Protein sources tend to be pricier than other foods, and it can be difficult to find quick and portable protein options. For this reason, many people can benefit from including a protein supplement in their diet, but there are so many different options on the market, it can get over overwhelming when trying to choose one. I typically recommend getting a protein supplement that has been third-party tested and includes at least 20 grams of protein per 100, 120-ish calories. One of my favorite brands on the market is Legion. Legion is best in class when it comes to quality. They use pure whey isolate, which is least likely to contribute to digestive issues, and they don't include any sugars or artificial sweeteners, and the protein powders still taste good. And they have a variety of flavors. I personally go with the Dutch chocolate, and I have it plain in a shaker cup with a piece of fruit for an on-the-go snack, or I add it to yogurt for a high-protein chocolate pudding. I also add it to oatmeal and sometimes other foods as well. If you want to give their products a try, Legion is currently doing a buy one get one off sale of their entire site for the month of november so click on the link in the show notes if you're interested or just go over to legionathletics.com and use the code chavez at checkout to get 20 percent off your first order or double your rewards points if you're already a customer that's legionathletics.com or just go to the link in the show notes question number two how do we remove pesticide residues from food so both organic and non-organic food are gonna have pesticide residues on them. Typically, organic food is gonna have a little bit less pesticide residues. Even on conventional food though, the pesticide residues are tested. They're tested to be at very low levels, but I understand the desire to completely minimize exposure to pesticides, you know, similar to minimizing exposure to nonstick coating. Like, it, it makes sense to minimize exposure to these things if we can, if and if it's not extremely inconvenient. So when it comes to uh, washing pesticide residues off food, just rinsing it underwater for a couple of minutes is one of the best strategies that can get a lot of the residues off. Peeling it will take off the most residues, but then you lose some of the nutrients in the skin. So just washing it underwater for a couple of minutes, soaking it can do the same thing, and then rinsing it off afterwards. So those two strategies can help get off the majority of the pesticide residues that will be on foods when you purchase them, or they can be on foods when you purchase them and also uh, blanching them in boiled water for a short period of time and then cooking them. So uh, it, let's say for example you're going to stir fry them well, if you blanch them in boiled water and then throughout that boiled water and then cook them most of those pesticide residues would be, would be thrown out with the boiled water. So I'm going to post a link to a study if you want to go read it. There's a paper, it's a review paper that talked about how to get pesticide residues off foods. Peeling it obviously was the most effective and then the blanching was the second most effective and then after that pretty much everything was about the same in terms of the effectiveness of getting the pesticide residues off and so rinsing just for a few minutes, five minutes underwater seems to be you know probably the easiest strategy that's going to have the most bang for your buck in terms of getting some of those residues off. Question number three, are there any benefits to taking a colostrum supplement? So I have talked about this on my social media and I have said no, but the reality is it's more nuanced than that. And the reason I say no is because I don't have time to go into a lot of detail on social media and I don't want to encourage people to take a supplement when most people don't need it. But there are 
use cases for colostrum. So there is evidence to suggest that colostrum can protect against the damage that's done from these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Colostrum has also been used to prevent against traveler's diarrhea, and it's also been used for necrotizing enterocolitis. So there are very specific use cases where there's intestinal injury or intestinal inflammation that is occurring where colostrum can help to reduce some of that inflammatory response and improve those GI symptoms. There isn't much evidence outside of that, and this isn't something that the general population needs to take. Maybe if you have one of these issues, you've been taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or you get traveler's diarrhea, then you might want to give colostrum a try, or you may want to consider this as a supplement. But for most people, this isn't something that you need to be taking. This is just the next trendy supplement. This happens every couple of years. A new supplement will get popular. All of the influencers who just promote products to make commissions and who are just in this field to make money off you will promote whatever comes next and they'll make their commissions for the one or two years that people are willing to try it and then when most people don't see any benefit from taking the supplement the influencers are now promoting the next thing it goes from cbd to colostrum to collagen there's always a new supplement to promote and there's always a new thing to get you excited about and the reality is the things that you need to be getting excited about is not colostrum but it's in sleeping and exercising and eating the right amount of calories and eating a sufficient amount of protein and fiber the things that i discuss a lot on this podcast the things that aren't that sexy to discuss on social media because it's just not that exciting so this is where your focus needs to be most people don't need to take a colostrum supplement there's no reason for most people to take a colostrum supplement there are very specific cases where colostrum supplement might be beneficial but that's two, three percent of the population, a very small percentage of the population, maybe a little bit higher in short uh, periods of time. Let's say, for example, you were taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, maybe taking colostrum with that would be helpful. Let's say, for example, you had a knee injury, you were taking NSAIDs for three months, well, maybe, maybe taking colostrum during those three months may be worthwhile. Now, there needs to be more data on this because there's only been one study that's been published so far, and typically we want more data to, to be recommending these things as a true treatment. Now, at this point, I would say it, it's worth trying if you want to really, you know, do the most to to prevent any negative effects from NSAIDs, especially if you have a history of developing digestive issues when you take NSAIDs, you know, using a, a colostrum supplement, you know, the, the benefit may outweigh the cost. But for most people, the cost is you're going to be paying money every month and you got to take a pill every day. And the benefit is almost nothing. So I don't recommend it for a vast majority of the population. Next question, do I think misinformation online should be illegal? <sighs> this is a loaded question. So I think that dangerous information that is blatantly misleading should be illegal. So for example, there's a guy who claims that he cured his cancer, who wrote a book and operates a whole business off of teaching people the strategies that he used to cure his cancer but the guy actually got surgery and he doesn't talk about that that much and he's developed a business and is you know puts out lots of information around the fact that he has cured his cancer naturally quote unquote and he is convincing a lot of other people to follow his path in terms of just trying to cure cancer with nutrition and without chemotherapy and radiation and traditional therapies. This is dangerous. 
this stuff should be taken down. There should be legal action against this type of stuff. Now, a little bit less extreme, let's say carnivore dieter, what's his name, Paul Saladino, carnivore MD. This guy is blatantly sharing misleading studies that is harming people's health in a, in a more subtle way. So him telling people that oatmeal is harming their health is scaring people away from eating healthy foods, which can have a negative impact on their health. And I've seen it over and over and over again. I've talked about it on the last episode uh, where, where we discussed the carnivore diet. Like These messages are so harmful. And you're being exposed to these messages of don't eat this. And same thing with the air fryers. Don't use an air fryer. Don't use a microwave. Don't eat these protein bars. Don't drink milk. Don't do this. And, and these people are scaring people into being afraid to eat anything or, or just having really disordered eating patterns. And this is psychologically affecting people as well as physically affecting people. And for me, I don't know where that falls. I don't know how that can be regulated. I don't know how you can make that, you know, quote unquote illegal. I definitely, you know, I, I believe in freedom of speech. But I also think that when you're putting out information that is intentionally misleading and manipulative and it is leading people to do things that are probably going to harm their health, like there should be a case there to be able to maybe not put people in jail, but to be able to stop them from continuing to put out those types of messages. So I don't know how that looks. I, I am not a, a law person whatsoever. I don't know how that would even look, how who would regulate it, what that would look like in any way. Um, but I think that there's there should be a case made for uh, people like this person that I'm referring to. And there's another woman called Belle Gibson. You can look up that particular individual. She was an Australian influencer. It's B-E-L-L-E, I believe. She was an Australian influencer who claimed to have cancer but didn't and claimed to be treating it with nutrition, but she never had cancer in the first place. And she built a multi-million dollar company, released an app, and all of these other people were curing cancer naturally following her path, and she never had cancer. These things are happening. These She actually went to jail. Uh, the other guy is still selling books, doing interviews, but his lie isn't as blatant. Um, but still, this is I, I, these things, there should be harder regulation on these things, in my opinion, especially with things like cancer, where the level of desperation when someone has cancer can lead them to be very vulnerable. And these people know that and they take advantage of that. And that's that's the thing that really bothers me is it's these people telling people that they have a cure for cancer and a cure for inflammatory bowel disease or autoimmune disease or Hashimoto's. Uh, those people, that I think there needs to be legal action. You, you can't go out and tell people that you can you can cure their disease or reverse their disease when you can't, when you truly can't. And and that's the case. You, if you see these ads where it's like reverse your autoimmune disease, they're just saying that from a marketing standpoint, and they're able to do that. And that's the thing that I think should be regulated against. There should be uh, more regulations on the type of claims that you can make when it comes to health. Last one, should we avoid deli meats? So this question comes because processed meats are classified as a class one carcinogen by the IARC. This means that these meats have been proven to cause cancer. And this is because 
the category of processed meats is consistently associated with higher rates of cancer, specifically colorectal cancer. And so the increased risk of colorectal cancer is about 18% with consuming, I think it's 50 grams of processed meats per day. This has been shown in multiple studies. This is well established, and that's why these processed meats are classified in the way that they are. Deli meats are part of this processed meat category. They're in there with things like bacon, spam, bologna, sausage. So I personally would say that a lot of this risk is probably being driven by some of these other foods in this category, but there's no good way to tease this apart because when we've done studies in the past, we haven't specifically asked, are you eating deli meat? Are you eating turkey? And so we don't have a lot of good research on what those subcategories are. Is there risk associated with consuming, for example, just deli meat. Now, there's another aspect of this. So deli meat often is processed with nitrates, and these nitrates can turn into compounds called nitrosamines in our gut, which have shown to be uh, carcinogenic. And so if you're consuming these deli meats and they're processed with these nitrates, and these nitrates are turning into these nitrosamines in your gut, then they can increase your risk. This is a complicated topic because nitrates also come in vegetables, but these compounds aren't formed, and the thought is that it's because of the antioxidant nutrients in the vegetables that prevent the formation of these compounds and protect us against these nitrosamine compounds and these nitrates being converted into these compounds. So if you can, it might be wise to go for like a nitrate-free if you're doing a deli meat. Um, I do recommend like the processed food category of Overall, if you're looking at like bacon, sausage, all of those things, like it, it's best to minimize your consumption of those. Those have been associated with higher rates of heart disease. Oftentimes, those foods have higher amounts of sodium and saturated fat as well. And so in that case, you know, those are likely increasing your risk of cancer and heart disease if you're eating those on a regular basis. When it comes to deli meats, if you're eating a deli meat that doesn't have too much sodium for your needs, that isn't high in saturated fat, and, and it fits within your saturated fat needs throughout the day, and is processed without nitrates. And if it is processed with nitrates, if you're consuming some vegetables with that so that you have antioxidant nutrients to help prevent the formation of those nitrosamines, then you're probably fine. But we don't have great evidence on deli meats specifically. And I don't necessarily want people to be scared away from eating deli meats because they are a very convenient and high protein option. But this is what the data shows is these overall, these processed meats are associated with higher rates of cancer. There's great explanations for why they are associated with higher rates of cancer. The deli meats are probably a little different than the rest of the category, but there is reason to believe based on the nitrates that the deli meats may be contributing to colorectal cancer as well. But there is also evidence to suggest that as long as you're consuming these foods with antioxidant nutrients from plant foods, that that will help to prevent the formation of these potentially harmful compounds. So that's a complicated topic. Sometimes I wish I could give just like a yes or no for these things, but my goal is to share as much information with you as I can and try to break down the topic as best as I can so that you can make the best decision that makes the most sense for you. 
So let's do a quick recap. Number one, are air fryer safe to use? Yes, not a big deal. Number two, how to get pesticide residues off foods, peel them or wash them or blanch them for a short period of time in boiling water. Number three, are there benefits to colostrum supplements? Not really for most people, but if you have an inflammatory gut condition, it may be helpful for you there. Or if you have traveler's diarrhea or if you have damage to your intestines from taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Number four, do I think misinformation should be illegal? I think some misinformation should be illegal when it's very dangerous. And I also think stricter regulations should be put around the claims that are being made when it comes to health because people are making very, very outlandish claims as a marketing tool and it's very manipulative. Number five, should we avoid deli meats? I don't necessarily think so. There's evidence that they may be associated with higher rates of colorectal cancer, but in my opinion, if you're consuming deli meats as a part of a healthy diet and you're not consuming too much sodium through them or too much saturated fat and you're consuming them with vegetables and other micronutrient-rich foods, the risk associated with consumption of those deli meats is very, very low, if any. So that's all I have for this episode of the podcast. I hope this was helpful and informative. If you like the show, make sure and leave a review. Make sure you share the show with someone else who may find it valuable. Hope you all have a great week and we will talk soon.